2: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I'd like to start this week's podcast by quoting astronaut Jim Lovell. If you look back from the moon at the Earth, you can put your thumb up and hide it, just like that everything you've ever known is behind your thumb and that fragile blue and white ball is orbiting a rather average star tucked away at the outer edge of a galaxy. Lovell's striking and beautiful observation provokes thoughts about religion, metaphysics and human frailty. And listening to the coverage of the 60th anniversary of the moon landing on Naked Scientists, these matters came to mind. Okay. Travelling in space may be an extreme example of the human obsession with travel, but Lovell's observations share something of the spirit of earthbound travellers and explorers of the past. Sometimes human travel is a necessity, sometimes it's just an uncomfortable chore, and sometimes it's more like a self-glorifying quest. But it seems to be deeply ingrained in our culture. With me to discuss this subject are Ilaria Bernocchi, an art historian at the University of Cambridge... Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director here at the Wolf Institute and Dunya Habash, a PhD student scholar also at the Wolf Institute. Welcome.
1: Thank
3: you. Thank you.
2: You've all studied travel in your research. So let's start, Miriam, 800 years ago. To what extent was travel in the medieval period a pilgrimage or a package holiday?
4: First, I think the first thing I would like to say is that travel was very, very common. It was much more common than we think. People traveled quite freely, all around the Mediterranean, into India, into Yemen. And um, there were pilgrimages, um, but there was also package. Because if you wanted to go on a pilgrimage, you couldn't just, you know, travel on your own, on your own boat. You had to entrust yourself into the hands of a captain who would ship you, who would protect you from pirates because piracy was a big deal. A lot of people were uh, captured on ships and then sold in, in foreign lands, which was a big danger. There were also a lot of Um, merchants who traveled. And very often it was a combination of things. So you would have a purpose for your travel. You would go, for example, on a pilgrimage, but you would stop over in other countries and visit people. There's this famous um, uh, poet, uh, Judah Halevi, who traveled on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but he stopped over in Egypt and he was um invited into all people's houses for dinner and he, he got really sick of it. He didn't like being invited around sort of reached sort of from one person to the other uh for dinners, for festivities. But he was such a celebrated poet that people just, you know, really wanted to have him over at the house. He died actually once he reached the Holy Land, but On his way to and he was a proper tourist. He stopped over in Cairo. He stopped over in Alexandria.
2: What about you, Ilario, as a a scholar of of the art and and, and the arts, tell us a little bit about how travel is represented in artistic artistic form.
3: Well, travel has always influenced the arts. Uh, Artists have always been traveling. Artists often working for different patrons, often moving around. And, you know, of course, um, finding different influences wherever they went. And bringing back often to their own countries. So um, on top of my mind, one of the most interesting artists I've ever studied is Antonello da Messina. He is one of the artists who travelled from Sicily to the north of Italy. Travelling has also meant that artists were sometimes very far away from home, and so that they would send letters back to handle their own affairs. They were far away from their wives, from their brothers, from their sisters. Michelangelo famously kept writing back home to try to help his parents and to have news from his father, from his brother, and so and he described uh, in his letters many of his uh, his works so did
2: that affect his art being away being fe- feeling um, isolated and lonely
3: well many times yes artists suffered from homesickness very often and he- michelangelo was working of course to often to support his family uh, his entire family, and so he he tried to keep an eye on his brother, on his father, but at the same time he, he had to handle a, a, a big workload when he was
5: in Rome uh, with the popes, so yes. So that of the sense of
2: it. isolation very much sort of feeds into your work, doesn't it, Dunya?
5: I'm looking in the contemporary period, um, particularly Syrian musicians who have now been forced to leave Syria and um, stay in Turkey. My case study is is in Turkey. And so I'm picking up a lot of what you're saying about being influenced by the new host context, and how that's changing their performance practices a little bit, and also changing um, their cultural imaginaries in terms of placing themselves um, in like some historic Ottoman past, for example, because they don't want to be outsiders in in the new environments that they find themselves living in. So I think very much this idea that we pick up on things around us consciously subconsciously and we incorporate it create new art forms new music new architecture whatever it is i'm i'm also very curious about this as a scholar and um i yeah i'm interested in documenting these things and i think this this has been happening since the dawn of human beings coming into contact with each other, basically. Mm. There's a slight difference between being forced to move and sort of choosing to move,
4: I suppose. Absolutely. To choosing to travel. I mean, people like Goethe, when, when he traveled to Italy, it was probably the greatest inspiration of his life. And there is something about when you are on the move. I mean, I noticed that when I, for example, I, I walk a lot. And just being on the move, it, it, it really sort of, sort of creates a space for thinking that you don't otherwise have.
3: What you were saying about Goethe and the uh, the inspiration he took when he traveled to Italy makes me think about another form of traveling, which was the Grand Tour, of course, that happened oh, yes. in the mm-hmm. same period. The Grand Tour was an aesthetic experience. So travel can be an aesthetic, a spiritual, uh, an intellectual experience. And that's what the Grand Tour was, of course, a tour to learn about Italian art, about the art of Southern Europe, uh, about to be inspired by the ruins, but also to be influenced and shaped by ideas of beauty, greatness, splendor, uh, mortality.
4: That came with it. So, mm. well, especially the I think the sort of the ideas of beauty. I I think since I started traveling and I've you know I've traveled quite a lot. I think I have a greater appreciation for beauty, beauty in all forms. Yes. And you know people say you know once you've seen something really grand it's not easy to appreciate small things but i think that's not true actually seeing the grand canyon for example makes me also appreciate very small hills in the cambridge oh, yes, in the absolutely. cambridge sort of countryside more absolutely. so it doesn't take away it actually adds i think
2: but let me push back a bit on that because there is a, a travel as a form of education i think we all agree with that but there's also travel as a form of colonialism as a form of 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 control isn't there
4: well, there certainly is. <laughs> I mean, it's a big uh, debate at the moment in all our courses. We, we teach uh, uh, decolonization. Um, but I think what is often forgotten is that there is a natural curiosity that we have, that we want to look beyond the horizon. And of course, there are people who abuse this curiosity for military purposes, for political purposes. But at the same time, I think we can't become fully cynical and think that there isn't this curiosity in the first place. You want to see what's on top of the mountain you want to see what's what's you know behind that mountain you want to you want to just explore and exploration of course has now all these caveats because it it, it was used as a, as a as a as a tool to to you know exert power over all people but and i think the the instinct of exploration is there in all of us it's probably something quite instinctive
5: um i just want to piggyback on this colonial thing because as for example everything you said definitely agree with Miriam Um, also for academic purposes we travel a lot right especially as social scientists or more specifically anthropologists ethnomusicologists um, who go into places where usually the people they're studying actually cannot travel I mean that's my case for sure dealing with Syrian refugee musicians in Turkey Um, and I come in with my US passport I can enter freely never had to think about visas before and You know, most of my informants, their whole life is the visa, is securing a new passport, a new citizenship. Um, And that's been something I've really struggled with personally, that I have this freedom and this taken for granted idea of motion. I can go anywhere in the world that I want, but most people actually don't have that access.
2: I can relate to that as well from a personal history point of view. um, Both my parents came over from Vienna um, as refugees. And I was brought up in this beautiful North London, um, uh, middle class environment. And I like you, I can pretty much go anywhere I want to. And I remember traveling through Eastern Europe, just being waved through with my British passport, and friends from other parts of Central Eastern Europe being held up um, for a long time. So and I I found that quite hard. I mean, that must be much more so when you're dealing, as you are, in in Turkey with Syrian refugees.
5: Absolutely, Ed. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I've quite found a way to deal with it. It's, it's really, really difficult. I think the best thing that I try to do is to listen openly to them as much as possible. And um, I try to emphasize also my Syrian heritage, which makes them feel like I'm somehow connected to them um, historically as a community also. And I think that's helped a lot because they feel, because a lot of them have also encountered more, you know, Western European researchers, Doing similar things, um, so and also
2: I tell you, in my experience, is also that people um, want you. I mean, they yes. don't. Want, they don't want you to be hindering yourself from right. the journey. That actually, um, they don't want to be the cause of you not traveling simply because of a guilt feeling that you might have.
5: Absolutely, yes. Um, so I've had a lot of positive uh, um, reactions um, in the field, but it, still, I can't get away from this. This idea, especially when a lot of them tell me, Dunya, can you help me get connected with UNHCR? Can you help me, um, you know, figure out a way to find a visa to leave Turkey, for example, or to leave Jordan? I did some research in Jordan as well, and that was very difficult. Saying sorry, I don't have those connections, um, and I'm still dealing with, with this issue very much in my work.
3: Well, the what you are discussing now, uh, the war, makes me think about in a much perhaps smaller way, but for an art historian, very important way, what do we do with the cultural heritage of the countries that are, you know, savaged by war? And one example is Syria now. And there's so much cultural heritage there, so many ruins, so many beautiful artworks that were in museums that are being destroyed. And one of our, since, you know, art historians and in general, we always know how important our cultural heritage is to us, to our identity. How do we help our brothers and sisters in Syria preserve what has been saved, and do we do we buy it? There, are, there have been some discussions mm. sometimes. Do we buy it from the black market just to mm. remove it from the war zones? But if what if that means funding indirectly some dangerous groups, terrorist groups? So what do we do with cultural heritage? How far can we go in preserving it? How how should we move? And that's a, to- a very hot topic uh, right now in in the art history field and cultural heritage and We're still trying to understand what's the best policy, how to help. And that's something that happened to Italy, to my country, when it was bombed during the Second World War. There were plenty of ways in which... um, People independently preserved, protected, and removed uh, paintings from private collections. We still have problems of, uh, you know, repatriation of artworks and collections from Jewish families. And we're still, that's, so art history sometimes touches on the nerve uh, of. Uh, the war and find itself at the center of very very complex disputes and so yeah
2: so we've covered if you like the movement of objects and the challenge of whether we can how we keep uh, ownership of those objects or not and we've talked a little bit about artists who may live in in other parts feeling very very lonely um but Miriam in the text that you analyze the Cairo Geniza over many many hundreds of years um the journeys that you've read about what what, what's been the most um, challenging journey or the, the, the most, yes, yeah, so what's been the most challenging journey that you've um, you've studied?
4: Well, there is the story of the brother of Maimonides. Um, he, he basically travels alone through the desert to a, a port in Sudan. Um, and he only has to do it because he m- somehow missed his caravan. And um, he was supposed to just travel down to the port and then buy goods there and come back. But because he manages to do this Quite dangerous travel through the desert by himself. He um, once he arrives in the in the, in the poor town, he actually finds that the caravan he was originally supposed to go with had been robbed, and people had lost their money and had lost goods. So he thought, "Oh my God, this is a, this is a this undertaking is really blessed by God." Um, so he decides to step on a boat and actually go to India or to Yemen himself to to buy goods there. And he writes a letter on the day of basically just before he leaves. And we have that letter and we know he drowned on that first voyage that he ever took. So we know that because my bonnet just writes about it. He said, I lost my brother and uh, I spent a year in bed clutching his last letter and crying over it. And we have that letter and it has a lot of stains on it and it has a lot of holes in it. So I think this is the most moving story that I've seen uh, because it's so it's so complete because we know from it from from the historiography. But we also have the actual document there.
2: You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and around this table this week are Ilaria Benocchi, an art historian at the University of Cambridge; Esther Miriam Wagner, executive director of the Wolf Institute; and Dunya Habash, a PhD student scholar also at the Wolf Institute. And we're discussing the idea of travel, from pilgrimage to package holiday. Let's move on to the subject of pilgrimages. and actually, let's start from people who come back from a pilgrimage before talking about people going on a pilgrimage. Um, in, in, in your work, Ilaria, uh, what, um, what struck you about the impact of a pilgrimage uh, on the pilgrim when they return home?
3: Well, actually, this is a very, uh, this is a very interesting question because um, I come from a city where the sort of central church my city is Brescia, in northern italy and the central church is an old roman city but the central church has been built it's probably one of the earliest we say the earliest but you never know one of the earliest built uh, with the same structure of the anastasis in jerusalem so pilgrims that had traveled to jerusalem had seen the anastasis were so impressed they wanted to build another jerusalem another anastasis in Brescia. and this is the church the holy sepulchre uh yes yes exactly the holy sepulchre yes and and the um a centralized uh, plan of the church uh, became quite common, was quite influential then in Europe, of course. It was invented then, but there was, you know, a moment in which it was adopted because people traveled to the Holy Land and were inspired by this, um, by whatever they saw there, so exotic, so different, so intense, such a spiritual experience that they came back with with new ideas for buildings, for art, etc. Almost
2: yes. like rebuilding Jerusalem.
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. The, the idea of rebuilding Jerusalem in Italian city, for instance, in the Renaissance, may sound quite curious to the modern listener, but it was quite, quite common and quite discussed, of course.
5: Um, yeah, actually, this reminds me of a mosque that I encountered in Istanbul called the Dolmabahji mosque, um, which was built in 1855, opened in 1855, during the height of contact with Western Europe for the Ottoman Empire. And this mosque, when I first saw it, I thought could easily be mistaken for some historic church back in London, because there's many Greek columns. I mean, it, it looks like a neoclassical style uh, building. Um, so I find that very interesting this idea that you know, people go to places, they see new things that inspire them, they come back, they recreate. It sounds like
3: the famous saying that the Romans had you know, that when they conquered Greece, Greece conquered them, you know, mm-hmm. Gregia Capta. Ferum Victorum Kepit. And so and the same with it I think with the with the East, that, you know, uh, Europeans travelled to the East and were so impressed by its beauty and by its tradition that they tried to imitate it and acquired many of its uh, aesthetic ideas and incorporated into into Western art, I believe. Yeah,
2: and and the movement not only of of ideas and of uh, uh, physical construction, but the movement of people to holy places mm. is something that is very much at the heart of our faiths, the Abrahamic faiths, and also of course the uh, Indian religions as well. So let's just touch on this question of the the Hajj because Miriam mentioned Judah Halevi who was making the pilgrimage to the Holy Land um, was it around one of the three pilgrim festivals he was going for or I
4: actually don't know that I mean we, we, we have quite a lot of pilgrimage literature in the Genesiser there are even sort of guidebooks to particular places you have to visit, when you go to the Holy Land you have to visit those sites it's uh, you know it's like a um, what, what are the, the, the travel guides these days? The Lonely Planet. <laughs> the Lonely Planet, <laughs> yes. exactly. It's the Lonely Planet of, of
5: 11th century.
2: <laughs> but the word hug, of course, it reminds one of the hajj uh, dunya.
5: Yes, um, which is, of course, a very central practice um, for practicing Muslims. And the interesting thing, I think... Um, not, inter- like, not just the spiritual aspect of it But also the, the kind of socio-political aspects that came with it Because especially during the rise of the Islamic uh, empires um, You had people from all over the empire that would gather every year And a lot of exchange of ideas and technology happened during this two weeks every year in Mecca um, Which is what caused lots of innovation around the empire And it was a good mechanism for... Um, communicating with other parts of it. So it was a good management of ideas and technologies and and inventions. Uh, So I find that really interesting, too, that it's not just this individual um, personal experience of of going on this journey, but it's also about who you meet there, who you see there, who you interact with, who you spend your meals with for two weeks. Um, And, yeah, so this is something I have been thinking about. But there's for example the Hajj, I mean I I sort of heard this talk about Hajj um uh, uh,
4: people going on the Hajj uh, from Africa and sometimes they were on the road for 4 years sort of crossing mm. the whole of Africa in order to go to the Red Sea in order to you know sort of arrive in Jeddah and very often they were enslaved once they arrived in Jeddah. <laughs> um but uh, this this sort of this desire to go to Mecca and then sort of take all these hardships, cross right. deserts, cross Dangerous countries in order to fulfill this, this, this—you know—this holy command.
5: Absolutely, I think it's very Hajj today is a very different experience from what it was in the medieval times. Um, now you can get on a plane and have a special package when you. But it's get still there. fairly dangerous, right? I mean, yeah. It still comes with a lot with of uh, millions of people in one place. There, yeah, every year people die still today in in Hajj. So it is. There's definitely this huge spiritual um, aspect to it. And as someone, I haven't done the Hajj yet, but I have done the smaller pilgrimage, the Umrah. um, And I went there as a teenager with my family. And there is something very, you know, when you grow up with this narrative that this place is very holy, there's something about this place or it's connected to this um, holy prophet, you know, and then you finally go there. I mean, there's there is something there with I don't know narratives or the power of like you know. Is
4: there an equivalent to Jerusalem syndrome?
5: What, explain
2: what Jerusalem syndrome is, Miriam.
4: Well, it's when people basically um, become slightly ecstatic and uh, when they when they actually finally visit the sites in Jerusalem.
2: Yes, because it's. Um, you know, it, 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 such is the power, if you like, of arriving in, say, uh, Al-Aqsa or at the um, Temple Mount or, or the cartel or the church, Holy Sepulchre, um, around Easter in particular. Um, there's always about half a dozen people each year who believe that they've suddenly received this, some kind of divine guidance to maybe bring on the return of Christ or see themselves as some biblical figure. I know one person who believed himself to be Samson, and was actually hospitalized for fear that he was going to cause damage Did in the Western Wall plaza. Did cut off his
4: hair. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it it, it it is a problem. There is this thing called Jerusalem syndrome. Yeah. And of course there's also a problem, isn't there, on these uh, sacred sites when people bring objects back with them.
3: Oh, you make mm. me think. Oh, that's that's uh, you bring back a memory from my undergraduate studies. I don't know. I've never verified this is true, but I remember studying whatever relics and objects people brought back from the Holy Land. And I remember this particular thing called the mm, the Virgin's Milk. Mm. And if I remember correctly, this was some sort of gesso, some sort of chalk that people... S- s- crutched out of the wall uh, in, a, in a cave, and it was sort of a white chalk, and they mixed it with water and brought it back, saying that it was virgin's milk. And all these sorts of relics and strange objects that were then enshrined in silver and gold and beautifully, and, and, and did shape... Art in the West, but of course, you know, uh, many of them, uh, if not all of them, but many of them have quite curious stories themselves. So. Well,
2: that's right. I mean, uh, you mentioned the the Church of Anastasis, but yeah. you know, that was, uh, um, if you like, the True Cross was uncovered by oh, Helena absolutely. in, in yes. three hundred and twenty five yes, or whatever yes, it was.
3: And we have many, many, many uh, churches claiming to have pieces of the True Cross uh, in beautiful reliquaries uh, built with great iconography. So it would be a definitely a big, big cross if all of them were true but you know um, yes it was one of the most one of the most important relics you could you could bring back from the holy land yes
2: and so this idea of a new home also is part of the whole concept of travel I mean each of us have a story about living in a new home having been on a journey um, perhaps forced on us or chosen by us Um, and I think that's something that is worth exploring what's it like moving from one place to another
4: yeah. I mean I remember this discussion that Theresa May started with the whole nowhere people and somewhere people. And uh, I mean it did I, I thought about this and, and to a degree I, she was right because I think having removed myself from my East German you know, the East German town that I grew up in, when you remove yourself, you become a lot freer. You become free of of traditions, you come free become free of custom, you become free of you know, having to do things a certain way, which causes some sort of disconnectedness, I think, in you. And it's it's sort of, I think I don't take life as seriously as I used to. Somehow there's a sort of slightly, sort of strangely disconnected because you're out of your community. Um, and this is something that goes back. I mean, for example, in the Geniza, there's a really famous businesswoman and she can only be a famous, scandalous businesswoman because her family her father and her mother they moved from somewhere else so she doesn't have an extended family and she can live as she wants because she's free from these family ties so you are not as grounded in a good sense but you're also not as grounded in a bad sense
3: well that's something that I experienced too and I think um, being in Italian I moved to England uh, it's, a, it's a small step but still a big step in some ways culturally and I, I wouldn't know. I'm sure I'm enriched. I'm sure I see things that I couldn't see before that are things. I think one of the the most humbling lessons has been to understand what English people find beautiful and find interesting. And this is very different from what Italians find beautiful and find interesting. And there is a love of nature, of tiny things, of flowers, of gardening, of animals that I don't remember cultivating so intensely when I was in Italy, Italians are more urban people. We love our cities. We are a renaissance, uh, a renaissance state still built in the city between the exchange of people. And English people love their countryside and their open spaces. And I have to say that one of the most beautiful things about traveling is and being a a foreigner, a stranger, is that you're obliged to see things you didn't see before and find out that you had them in yourself and that sometimes you wouldn't have never discovered them had you stayed in your own country.
2: Well, we don't need to go to the moon to discover a great deal about ourselves. My thanks to our guests, Ilaria Bernocchi, Esther Mirin Wagner, and Dunya Habash. And thanks also to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about looking on the bright side, hope, faith and optimism.